Let's go down to the Word of God for a few Sundays here in the spring. We're going to be looking at some of the Psalms. And this particular Psalm is Psalm 107. There are five books of Psalms, just like there are five books of the law. There are five books of the Psalm. And we are starting with this particular chapter, Book 5, the, the last of the five books of the Psalms. And chapter 107, the first uh, passage there. Hear now the word of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, for he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. This particular psalm, Psalm 107, is most probably a post-exilic psalm. That is one of those that came after the exile. However, it could have been written by the psalmist David. It certainly resembles so much of David's writing and very well could have been written. But it is a timeless psalm. It is a psalm that speaks of four vivid, physical, concrete, daily, desperate situations. Four occasions in which we find ourselves in distress. And in these four occasions, then, there is spelled out the particulars of the distress and then the deliverance by the Lord. The Lord delivers His people from their distresses. The psalmist David, indeed, in another place had said, In my distress I cried unto the Lord. And this particular psalm is a very lyrical and beautiful. In fact, some of the commentators say that this is probably some of the finest piece of poetic literature anywhere in human uh, history. That if this had been written by some of the Greek poets or someone else, it would be considered their particular masterpiece. And it, it certainly is. Some of the features of the psalm, if you'll kind of, if you have your Bibles, you can open up there and see the, the wider psalm. It, it uh, goes for 43 verses. We're not going to look at the entire psalm, but we're going to look at the first particular passage. But in all four of these, it has this, this theme. It talks about a particular distress that someone was in. The first one is they wandered in desert places. Then they cried to the Lord in their distress, and He delivered them from their distress. So here's the pattern. You're in a particular predicament. You call upon the Lord. And by the way, that word that's used for cry, which translated cry, means to, to raise an awful sound, to clamor, to 
be heard as though it were the din of a battle. It's not just a quiet prayer, although it might be a quiet prayer of desperation, but it's a crying out to the Lord in extreme circumstances. And it's audible. And it is straight from the heart. They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. And then another theme of each one of these is that they're called upon, here we see it in verse eight, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And then there's another circumstance that's described in verses 10 through 16. And that is that people sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and so forth. In verse 13, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. The same chorus, the same strophe. Then two verses later, again, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And then a third distressful situation is highlighted. Some were fools through their sinful ways. <laughs> I wish I was preaching on that one today. Some were fools through their sinful ways. Foolish, sinful ways. And the consequences of that. But then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, verse 19, and he delivered them from their distresses. Let them, verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of men. Then the fourth circumstance. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters and the stormy winds came up and lifted the waves of the sea and the waves mounted up to heaven. Their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunk men and they were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Do you remember when this happened in the life of Jesus? This is a direct reference to Jesus on the stormy sea with the disciples when Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat. And they cried out to the Lord. And that's what he did, what the passage says here. They were glad that the waters were quiet. He made the storm to be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Remember Jesus said, peace, be still. He was fulfilling literally in the lives of his disciples this particular deliverance from stress. And it says, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of men. So you see how this goes? It's a beautifully laid out in a poetic and lyrical form. And then at the very end, there's a passage that says, whoever is wise, verse 43, the very last one, kind of a summation, an incluso to the rest of the text. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. The fool just misses the point almost every time. The wise person gives attendance to the testimonies of the Lord. Let them, that is the wise, consider the steadfast love of the Lord. That word steadfast love, how many times have we seen it in the text? Well, it occurs about seven times in this passage and it occurs throughout the Bible, 35 times. It, recur, it occurs 25 times in Psalm 136. 
Remember that passage that says, the mercy of the Lord endures forever? It's the same word that's translated steadfast love. And what it means is it, it's a, a, a very uh, strong Hebrew word, hesed. And what it means is it means covenant love, God's committed love, rising out of His mercy, His passion, His, his uh, compassion, His pity upon His people, His favor that He wishes to bestow upon them, His innate goodness that abounds. All that is within Him wants to reach out and help His people and deliver them and save them. And most of the time they're in trouble because of their own doings their own sinfulness, their own waywardness, their own straying, their own enmities and hostilities, their own indulgences and laziness and indolences. But God wants to help. And He commits Himself in a covenant, in a sworn covenant to save His people. And that's what steadfast love is. It's covenant faithfulness. It's loyalty. It's God reaching out and establishing, if you want to be a little bit technical, and I was debating whether to go into that this morning, but let me teach for just a moment if you'll let me. The picture in the, in the Bible of God's relationship to us is very vivid. It comes out of a very rich heritage of one of the descendants of Canaan was a man named Heth. And Heth had descendants who were not altogether the most godly people. In fact, you remember Esau married a couple of daughters of Heth, and it brought grief to his um, mother for the rest of her life. But, the, but the, the descendants of Heth who descended from Canaan were the Hittites, the ancient Hittites. And the Hittites, we've discovered in archaeological studies, had a covenant form of a treaty that they used, which they believe was typical of the ancient Near East and the ancient treaties. And it always had the same story. It was the story of a great Susan reign, a great suzerain, which is a great sovereign. And out of his desire to help out, and out of his desire to, to be benevolent, and of course, out of his desire to possess as well, and to own and to establish a relationship, he would risk all to rescue some other small nation or some tribe or some family or some individual. And in so doing, the great suzerain would pour out on his own initiative his grace and his help and rescue, deliver that person or that nation or that tribe or whoever he was, that city that was in, was in danger. And when he did that, he established a relationship he established a sovereign vassal relationship. The person of the, of the tribe or the city or the recipient of that great grace, that great favor that saved them from utter destruction or poverty or famine or any number of things that they were rescued from, owed an eternal debt of gratitude to the sovereign. And it established a relationship but it wasn't that the sovereign was exploitive. The sovereign would continue to pour out grace and mercy and would continue to have a favorable relationship with that vassal. And that vassal would, would grow in appreciation and love for that sovereign. And the vassal would learn over time the goodness and the grace of the sovereign. And the sovereign and the vassal would over time develop 
a brotherly relationship, a friendly relationship. And there would be on the part of the vassal continuing, never-ending, faithful, loyal, geyser-like surgings of blessings upon the vassal. And the vassal would have an eternal love and obedience and service to the sovereign. That makes sense? And that picture is used all through the Bible. God is the great savior of his people. And his people then, in that relationship, learn their part. Their part is submission, yieldedness, obedience, loyalty. They learn that it is not perfection that they need because the Lord saved them in their distress, in their helplessness, in their sinfulness, in their waywardness. His grace was prior to their love. His mercy and His salvation comes before their obedience. Their love for the sovereign, their love for their master, and their obedience to their Lord is responsive. It's not causal. They respond to Him in salvation, not cause Him to save them. And the Lord even points out from time to time how unworthy and undeserving Israel was. And their, the favor that they received from the Lord, the blessing they received from the Lord didn't come because they deserved it or because they were the most powerful or the most advanced or the most attractive or the most lovable tribe on earth. But it was his sovereign, sovereign, this great suzerain, his attributes of mercy, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, benevolence that initiated. The apostle captures it just about as well as anybody. We love him because he first loved us. So that's the picture of salvation all through the scriptures. Now this particular uh, passage here that talks about this first category of distress is very interesting. He says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His covenant loyalty, his covenant love, his faithfulness. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When you've been rescued, when you've been delivered, when someone has saved you, helped you, loved you, brought you out, lifted you up out of a horrible pit and set your feet upon a rock and established your goings and put a song in your heart. And the end of this whole passage talks about all the wonderful ways in which the Lord blesses. He turns the rivers, um, he turns rivers into the desert and springs of water and fruitful land. And, and there's all kinds of uh, 
the plants, the fields, and the vineyards, and, and all of this happened. The livestock begins to multiply. And all of these things that God does, these physical blessings that are brought upon the person that receives the salvation of the Lord, this is the time in which the relationship matures and is established. And it goes all the way through. When all of that has happened to you, shouldn't you tell somebody? Shouldn't you mention it from time to time? And the old Puritan writer on the song, Dixon, says, we need to thank the Lord and praise the Lord and thank Him for His salvation in secret and in society. <laughs> I love that. That'll preach. Thank the Lord in secret in your heart with a heart of gratitude and humility before Him and in society among the faithful. In fact, the passage later mentions about coming to the great congregation and testifying to what God has done in your life. We call that in our statements of our church, telling the stories of rescue. Telling a story about how God has rescued us. Now this first particular one here is the trouble that the Lord has, has um, redeemed us from. Verse two says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so in secret and society, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Now, the word trouble is really the word enemy. It's the word foe. And I like that better because trouble just might be, you know, a flat tire. <laughs> you know, trouble might be your car doesn't start on a cold morning. You know, trouble might be you spill the beans on the floor. But it's more than that. This is he has redeemed us. He has rescued us. He has ransomed us from an enemy. The picture is there's someone out to destroy us. And the Lord saves us from that destruction. And that's exactly right. There is an enemy of our soul, and it's Satan himself. He has come to bring death every place the Lord has given life. He comes to bring destruction every place that the Lord has created order. He wants to bring chaos. The enemy of your soul is out to destroy you he will lie to you. He will tempt you. He will deceive you. He will draw you under. He's a liar. He's a thief. He will rob you of everything that you have spiritually. Now, all of these situations talk about a physical thing, physical wandering, a physical sickness, a physical uh, uh, situation of being in a, a very deadly storm in the sea. But they all really speak of spiritual matters. And since the physical is so obvious, let me just leave us with a few suggestions about the spiritual nature of this first one. And that is, some wandered in, wandered in desert places, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hunger and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. That's the circumstance right there described in verse 4. This is the desert places. This is more than just being lost in a wilderness. Although the Bible is full of the wilderness imagery. Remember Adam and Eve when they sinned? They were banished. They were cast out. The garden was lush in its development and in its growth and in its productivity. But they were put out of the garden. 
You remember Cain, when he murdered his brother, was banished even further east, out, further toward the Sahara, further toward the great Arabian desert, further toward that sector of the ancient world, which we know as the howling wilderness, where you can go for days without any spark of vegetation or any drop of water. And that's the banishment. That's the physical vision, but the spiritual is even worse. Finding no way to a city in which to dwell. In the desert, in the wilderness, there are no roads to mark. You have what you wanted all your life. All your life you've wanted freedom. You did not want the confines of the law of God and the commandments of God. You wanted to get rid of those. God says one thing about life and about marriage and about work and about children and about income and finances and just go down the long list of life's things. But you want to kick those boundaries away. And before you know it, you find yourself in a wilderness where there are no roads, no way. Oh, that's liberty. That's freedom. You can go any way you want to. You can go this way that you don't have to follow a trail. You don't have to follow a path. You don't have to follow the signs. You don't have to stay within the confines of somebody else's idea of morality. You can do anything you want to do. That's freedom. No, it's not. It's death because you're in an unmarked place, but you're in a place where there's no food, there's no water, there's no spiritual nourishment. There is no ground zero. There is no place to start. There's no place to finish. There's no goal. There's no timetable. It becomes ultimately meaningless and valueless. That's where I think our society is in many places. And that's where some of our souls are from time to time, where we've pushed out all the boundaries and now we find our place where there's no way, there's no path, there's no place to go. There's no real destination. There's no city. The city is seen as the place of protection with walls around it and prosperity and order and structure and strata of the blessing of the Lord. Ultimately, God's leading us all to a city, and it's Zion. And that's what it is. You're hungry and you're thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Think about the times in the Bible when God's people were wilderness wonder. Abraham called out of the Ur of the Chaldees, where he was very well established, up the Euphrates Valley to um, a place where he lived a very good life. And the Lord says, I told you to get out of there and get away from you. And he brought him into the deserts and into the wilderness. And for the rest of his life, he wandered. He was a sojourner. Book of Hebrews tells us he was looking for a city. That's what you're doing when you're wandering. You're looking for that place. You're looking for that destination. You're looking for that home because you've been banished. You've been put out in the wilderness. And that's the way we are in our sins. We're like the sheep that can stray all over the mountain. We feel like we're doing what we want to, but we're unprotected. We're disenfolded. We're not part of the protection of the Lord. Is that where your soul is this morning? Is it, is it wandering? Is it in a wilderness, in the desert place where we're hungry and thirsty? God's people in the wilderness, remember their experience? Oh, here's the real experience in the wilderness. 
Christ in the wilderness. Driven, following his baptism, driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. The howling wilderness, the desolate place, no food, no drink, out there. And Mark, in his gospel, mentions just one thing about the, about the wilderness that was scary. <laughs> Wild beasts were in the wilderness. Not only was there nothing for you to eat, but you were something for something else to eat. You were susceptible, vulnerable. Spiritually, that's where we are. This sentence here says, their soul fainted within them. The original language is a little stronger than that. The word that's translated fainted means crushed. Their soul was crushed. If we weren't talking about the spiritual before, if we were just talking about the physical privations of life, now we're talking about the spiritual. A crushed soul, despair, despondency, absolute hopelessness, end of the road, wit's end. No place to go. And there's our theme. Then they cried. That means they cried out. They made a great clamor to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their stress. He delivered them. Well, I'm out of time, but let me just tell you how he delivered them. If you can't see it, I'll show it to you. It's in verse 7. He led them by a straight way and they reached a city to dwell in. What did the Lord do to us when we were in the desert, when we were in the wilderness, when we were starving, when our souls were being crushed, when we were at our wits end, when we were lost and undone? He led us in a straight way. The word straightway means constricted, narrow. Who is the straightway? Who is the narrow path? Who is the way, the truth, and the life? What did God do for His people when they were in the wilderness, he gave them Christ. The straight way. Till they reached a city to dwell in. He didn't just give them a city right away. But he gave them a way. That is Christ to the city. To Zion's hill. To the eternal Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. The fold of God. Let them then thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His covenant faithfulness, His wondrous works to the children of man. And finally, He satisfies the longing heart and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Enter in at the straight gate. Feast upon your hungry soul. Feast upon the bread of life. 